Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted and honored to introduce two of my esteemed colleagues, Korzad Mehta and Jim McLaughlin. Between and among the three of us, we have over half a century or almost 50 years of immigration law experience. Today's topic is overcoming issues with PWDs or prevailing wage determinations. What is a PWD? Well, as many of you may already know, the prevailing wage determinations or PWDs are the necessary first step in the PERM green card processing where we need to, as employers, and we as attorneys helping you as employers, need to obtain the prevailing wage determination from the U.S. Department of Labor. In the PERM green card process, the employers are required to pay a salary that either meets or exceeds the prevailing wage for the sponsored position as determined by the U.S. DOL or Department of Labor. Here we as attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm will discuss a broad overview and some of the fundamentals of the PWD process and the current trends. Hopefully, all of this will provide you some useful guidance and help you to appreciate the subtleties, the nuances, and the complexities involved in preparing and filing a strong and good PERM application. And obviously, you need the best, the best law firm and legal team on your side working with you as you go through this process. So... The prevailing wage determination is completed on something called a Form 9141-9141. As I just explained, it's the first step in the PERM labor certification process where the U.S. Department of Labor informs and advises the employer what are the minimum wage requirements that the employer must pay the employee or beneficiary once the green card is actually approved. And the wages are determined from the Department of Labor in their database called the OES. And there's also something called a collective bargaining agreement or an alternate wage survey. So there's different databases that they can look at, which I know between Corzad and Jim, they're going to go over it. So let me have you, Jim, if I may, start with just explaining how do you prepare the Form 9141. Okay, well, you know, uh, one of the things to re remember is the prevailing wage determination on Form 9141 really is the keystone for the entire process of the labor certification. Um, it must mirror the 9089. Um, and so generally speaking, by the time you're ready to file the prevailing wage determination with DOL, you should have done your homework. You need to make sure that the description on the 9141 is accurate for the job, includes the correct minimum requirements, 
uh, for the position. And eventually, when the pre uh, prevailing wage determination is issued, you're going to get your occupation code and your wage level. Now, one of the things that we see all the time is uh, employers will come to us. They're like, this person's um, employed with us, a VP of technology. Um, but you want to make sure that your internal titles um, don't inflate the potential occupation code or the wage level. You really want to look to the job duties okay. for the position. And so when you say occupation code, I think that's a great segue to get to you, Korzad. What are the factors in determining the prevailing wage? And let's touch a little bit first upon what Jim just mentioned, namely the occupation code. Sure. Well, you know, the occupation code is one of the factors that the Department of Labor takes into account when assigning a prevailing wage to a uh, job opportunity. Uh, what the Department of Labor effectively does is take the job description as presented by the employer with the minimum requirements uh, and compare them against the ONET. The ONET is the new, new being a bunch of years old now, but new for me, uh, wage library that is, or occupational library rather, uh, that the Department of Labor maintains in place of the old Dictionary of Occupational Titles. Uh, what the employer, what the Department of Labor does is look at the job description, look at what the job requires, and then tries to find a best fit from within the uh, ONET uh, database. Now, the ONET database is very, very broad. Uh, one of the hallmarks of shifting from the Dictionary of Occupational Titles to the ONET was taking a, a very huge uh, list of occupations and then combining them, not combining them so much as um, distilling them into job classifications which are a little, a little bit broader, which can have a variety of job titles and descriptions within them. Uh, the job classification that the, the occupational code, the occupational classification that the Department of Labor selects when determining what the wages in this ETA 9141 prevailing wage determination is effectively discretionary. Uh, when we fill out 9141s, we try to help the employer craft the job description as well as suggest a job title which will prompt the Department of Labor to issue the prevailing wage determination based on the job classification that we, th that we believe as the advocates is the best fit. However, uh, the Department of Labor can and oftentimes does uh, select a alternate uh, job classification, which may or may not be the one that we initially wanted, and you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. But uh, when they do that, sometimes that results in a higher wage than uh, what we expected. Uh, so, is there any difference at all then? Why is it so much more complicated? This is sounding so much more complicated. If I'm the employer, I'm listening to this teleconference by the incredible Murthy Law Firm legal team, and I'm thinking, well, I do something very similar for the H-1B petition and process. Why can't I just follow that? That seems to be much less onerous, and I can actually decide and put the occupation code myself. Uh, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, the department, of, yeah, the, for when it comes to green cards, uh, which is what we're talking about here, prevailing wage determinations. Uh, the for, let me let me back up. When you're filing an H-1B petition, the rules give you an option as to whether you, as an employer, can select the job classification and the wage level, and then proceed with filing the labor condition application, or actually 
submitting one of these 9141s for an H-1B process. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to green cards, the, the regulations are very clear. Before embarking on the rest of the green card process, one must get the wage directly from the Department of Labor uh, and then either meet that wage or exceed it, depending on what the requirements are. Okay. Okay. And what if, are they, is there any issue about if the job duties and the title are very closely well, listed to each other? And how does that, you know, is there an impact? What is, yeah, how does well, that work? Remember what I was talking about. You know, historically, what happened was that they took the Dictionary of Occupational Titles, which was a huge list of supposedly every single job title for jobs in the United States, and then condensed it into the ONET, which brought about job classifications. Uh, along with these occupational codes, because this ONET is supposed to be kind of free-flowing and continuously developing, uh, the department has developed what are known as catch-all uh, occupational codes. They typically end in .99, I believe. And uh, the Department of Labor uh, puts many new and upcoming job titles within those job codes while they're getting the statistics and information that they need to really determine where that job title or that or whether a new job classification would need to be developed. Right, it's usually for emergency, uh, emerging right. occupations. Correct? Exactly, but what, you know, but I think Jim would agree that the Department of Labor is very, very, very resistant to basing prevailing wage determinations on one of those occupational classifications that are in the catch-all that are emerging That's because right. of the lack of data. Horror. Right, right. But there is hope horror for a few of the classifications, such as uh, last week, uh, Sheila, when you and I were at the open forum mm -hmm. for DOL, they, they're aware that there are new occupations um, that are emerging within the past 10 years um, that they are hoping to be able to expand in 2018. Um, we're hopeful. But yeah. we won't hold our breath. Okay, just to clarify what Jim just referred to is the American Immigration Lawyers Association or ALA annual conference, which in 2015 was held at the National Harbor in Washington, D.C. And basically, that's where we meet the senior most officials from each of the different federal government agencies, including the U.S. Department of Labor and U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And Jim was referring to the panel with the U.S. Department of Labor, Labor senior officials that were explaining about how these new emerging trends are happening. So I know there's been a lot of discussion also because of this sort of emerging situation and it's not necessary that every job neatly fits squarely into one box. There's something that we've all often heard of a term called combination of occupations, which I know sometimes can be a red flag or red alert right. for the Department of Labor. Can you explain if that can work or what are the pro problems that if I'm an employer that I need to be aware of, right. Jim? Yeah, there, there are two main issues with a uh, combination of occupations. Um, one of them is that if the Department of Labor is reviewing a job description and they see that this job really kind of encompasses two different occupations in the ONET, they're generally going to um, assign it the higher wage level code. Um, so often we may see this in technology positions where um, you you have somebody who's doing the work, but at the same time, they may have uh, managerial duties, some supervisory duties. And if it's close enough or if they look like the job duties are parsed enough, they may give that the uh, manager, uh, managerial position for technology and information systems, which is significantly higher than, say, a systems analyst position. Um, so that's your first problem. 
Um, the second problem is if it's a combination of occupations, DOLs identified this on the prevailing wage determination, then you also are going to have to defend that potentially later down the road in an audit through business necessity. Um, in arguing that you know this isn't typically what the employer requires for individuals performing these duties. Okay, um, let's go next to what we call the area of intended employment, and what happens then to roving employees, or which is very, of course, common not just in the consulting company area, but that's primarily a big portion of the work. The issue of client location versus the headquarters rule. What about telecommuting? Can you touch upon all of that, Corzad? Sure, Sheila. So another factor that the Department of Labor is required to take into account when assigning a wage is where the employment is going to actually occur. Where is the area of intended employment? Where is the job going to be done? Now, uh, in traditional employment situations, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, the work is done at the office in a specific state or city, a city or in state, uh, which falls within a specific metropolitan statistical area. The Department of Labor then pulls the wage information for that particular job classification that they've selected uh, from that metropolitan state, uh, metropolitan statistical area, and that is the basis of the wage. Where it becomes a little bit tricky is for those employees who are not necessarily going to be in one MSA as part of their job. Uh, take the example of the IT consultant employed by a uh, by an IT consulting agency, which has many contracts with many with many employers all over the uh, United States, and plugs their human resources, their consultants into those uh, into those contracts on an as needed basis. Those are permanent jobs. However, they require a lot of moving back and forth. So those types of roving employees, the labor certifications are filed based on something that we amongst ourselves in the immigration law community called a headquarters rule, which was explicated in a memo from Barbara Farmer, who was a uh, Back in 1994, that's over 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. It's unbelievable. <laughs> when they want to, they use the old stuff. When they want to change it, they change it right. yesterday. Which permits employers who employ roving employees to do recruitment and other steps that are required from the labor certification process through the head, the location of the headquarters. And as uh, Jim said when we were starting off this discussion, the ETA 9141, the, the prevailing wage form, must match the ETA 9089, the labor certification form. So the same principle applies when one is submitting a um, a prevailing wage determination request whereby the place of employment is listed as the headquarters. However, the fact that travel relocation is a part and parcel of the job because the employee is going to be roving is uh, listed and checked off in the appropriate portions of the... And if it's not done, the case box. could very well get denied, which is what, unfortunately, when we get cases from other law firms and lawyers, it's like, oops, my lawyer didn't stress this or mention it, and that was the reason for uh, question, you know, sort of the r r denial or an audit, et cetera. Right. What about the issue of telecommuting? Yeah, I mean, whether ro whether an employee is roving or is, n or is in a more traditional employment type situation, telecommuting is more and more uh, common um, in the U.S. corporate workforce. Uh, and uh, basically, the uh, telecommuting is listed as a, a requirement or an additional... They have to uh, think of it more a, as a benefit, a I think, the Department of Labor. Right. And, but they also look at it as a job 
would you say a job duty or not so much yeah, a job duty, a but a, like a requirement? Potentially, it kind of depends how it's phrased. And but yes. you know, we'll be talking about wage levels next, but uh, oftentimes the Department of Labor, when there's a telecommuting requirement, does add a uh, point to their analysis as a more because it's another requirement. Okay, That's so right. uh, everything we've talked about now, whether it's a combination of job duties or the area of intended employment, all of these will determine from what you just heard both Korzad and Jim talk about will determine what the wage will be for that particular job. So let's specifically get into wage levels. How are wage levels determined? What is the guidance out there, Jim? Okay, well, for the guidance, we're going back six years, so fairly new for the Department of Labor. Um, So the last guidance that was issued was in 2009. Um, And in that guidance, uh, they list out the primary factors for determining uh, what the wage level will be. So we've already talked about you found your classification, for the job, your job category. And now within that category, there are four levels, generally speaking, uh, when you're looking at the OES wage library for DOL. Uh, The primary factors in this case... As we would expect, the primary factors... uh, Are education and experience. Um, So you need to compare your job code or job category to the ONET information, so what is typical for that position. say, general professional positions requiring a master's, I'm sorry, a bachelor's degree, Um, that's, if it's standard for that occupation, it's going to be a level one wage. Um, However, depending on what else is in there, you're going to increase the wage level. So certain things as any special skills or certifications or licenses. Um, Now, that's only if it's in addition to the minimum requirement. So say a doctor needs residency, uh, that, or a license to practice in a state, that wouldn't increase the wage level. Uh, but say you need PMP certification, that potentially could increase the wage level. Travel requirements are generally going to increase the wage level. Supervisory duties, the complexity of the job, um, any unusual duties. Um, a combination and extra duties from other occupations, maybe not sufficiently enough to say that it's a combination of occupations, but something that an additional duty that typically would not be part of that may also increase the wage levels. So okay. you have to be careful. Hmm. It certainly sounds extremely complex to figure this all out. And on top of it all, there's something that an employer can submit called the AWS or Alternate Wage Survey, where the employer can submit a copy of the survey that they use. For example, you can send out a request to all of your colleagues in your industry asking what do you pay for a programmer analyst position, let's say in the Dallas, Texas area, um, and the methodology that is used Uh, and share that information with the U.S. Department of Labor with your prevailing wage request to request them to consider that alternate wage survey as um, determining, determinative in that particular industry for that particular job, that title, in that location. And the Department of Labor then will decide whether or not to accept that AWS. So, um, So what are the factors that the Department of Labor considers in accepting the alternate wage survey. So, Sheila, you know, to uh, the regulations set forth what the alternate wage survey should have as far as methodology and current uh, currentness of information. Um, one thing is is that the for the alternate wage survey must be based on data collected within a certain time frame, uh, 24 months of publication of that survey. Uh, if it's based on a survey conducted by an employer, then that uh, data must be uh, must have been collected within 24 months of submission of the prevailing wage determination uh, request. Um, 
it has to also be the most current edition. So, you know, if it's 24 months, that's fine, but it has to be, you know, the most current edition that that particular company, Mercer does these, Watson Wyatt, uh, have uh, put out. Uh, and it has to be further, you know, subdivided by area of intended employment, as we discussed. You know, the Department of Labor sets their wage based on the area of intended employment. Now, when it comes to their own information and their own statistics that comes out of the ONET, their own census, basically, uh, they're limited to, they limit it to specific metropolitan statistical areas. Now, remember, metropolitan statistical area is a unit of, um, of uh, you know, calculation within the census system. There are other statistical areas, PMSAs, CMSAs uh, going, you know, higher. And see so the consolidated, consolidated metropolitan statistical area, right? And uh, they, it is possible that the Department of Labor would accept alternate wage surveys that divide the wages per consolidated metropolitan statistical area, not each individual metropolitan statistical area, simply because a metropolitan statistical area is not like an administrative division. They don't have fixed and it's controlled borders. It's not a county borders. or city. Exactly. It could be a 15, 20-minute commute, right. but it might be even across a state line or across the county, but it still would be... Could apply, could apply for that C for that MSA. Right, you know, many 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 times, uh, you know, we've had individuals who uh, work in you know m multiple locations within a commutable distance, and uh, the wages are appropriately reflected from that. Okay, correct. And so we talked a little bit about the main factors being, you know, the 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 education and the work experience, but the job description or the requirements obviously have to be consistent uh, with what is in the offer job because that's going to obviously make a huge impact in the determining the prevailing wage for that particular occupation. So what are the factors we look at? There are four primary factors that we look at. One is that we need to demonstrate that the data represents workers who are similarly employed, meaning similar jobs, similar occupation, similar job duties. Second, Similarly employed means requiring similar levels of skills. So again, it comes back to the education and work experience, the level of skill required. Third, we look to see if the survey has information about the education and training requirements, which are extremely helpful, but are actually not required as an essential factor. But it's important, it's helpful to see if the survey actually has information about the education and the training requirements. And fourth, Look for an overlap in duties, in skills, in tools, certifications, technologies, licensures, etc., because all those will be taken into account. What about, oh, Jim, can you talk a little bit about maybe the cross-industry representation? Yeah, absolutely. And before I go into that, I'd just like to mention, go back a little bit to something Corzad mentioned, which is regarding the, uh, the date, the publication time frame. Um, a lot of alternative wage surveys out there um, today have ongoing information that's coming out. They're publishing new every two months. So that requirement that it's the most current edition within the last 24 months, you really need to be on top of when you're about to file a prevailing wage Very determination. So keep that in mind. Um, now, for alternative wage surveys, you know, one of the uh, criteria, as Sheila mentioned, is it has to be across country. Uh, I'm sorry, across industries. So generally speaking, you can't be taking information just from one industry. You have to be going across all industries for those similarly employed in the occupation. Um, take, for example, uh, you know, a uniquely the hospitalist occupation. Um, 
generally speaking, you think, well, that's all within the same occupation. So you have to broaden that out. Is there an others category on the alternative wage survey that you're looking to purchase and use for this prevailing wage determination? So show that it's uh, taking information from public and private hospitals, um, that it's taking information from pra private practices, uh, universities, nonprofits, and uh, profit institutions. Um, in addition, additionally, you need to have a certain sample size. Generally speaking, uh, you need 30 responses. Um, uh, average, the average um, number of employers we would say that you must have for it to be minimally acceptable DOL is three employers and at least 30 workers. Uh, you also need to have a certain uh, survey methodology. Uh, you need, within that alternative wage survey, it needs to describe that methodology and make sure it's acceptable to the Department of Labor. That includes sample size, source, um, descriptions. We've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of alternative wage surveys turned away from the Department of Labor and not accepted because it didn't list out the job duties that were specific enough or um, you know, unique enough to the actual job that you're listing in the prevailing wage determination. Um, and lastly, you need to have a representative sample. Um, so, you know, the statistical sa uh, standards that are used must be reasonable and consistent. Okay. So, in terms of what we're seeing, are there any trends in the Department of Labor's current alternative wage survey acceptance? How's that going? Yeah, Sheila, unfortunately, they kind of hate them. Uh, it's true. You it, know. Costs, it takes so much time, effort, money, and energy for the employer to do it, and they just... Absolutely. But, you know, how, how do I say this? Basically, the Department of Labor looks at the alternative wage survey factors, as we've just discussed them, as kind of the outlines of a very, very strict box. And a lot of times when survey companies are putting together these surveys, they're putting them together for a purpose other than Department of Labor. I know the Department of Labor and the labor certification process rules our lives, but it doesn't necessarily rule the lives of everybody. So consequently, uh, those the off-the-shelf surveys uh, especially uh, don't always rigidly meet the requirements that the Department of Labor is looking for. Consequently, it gives the Department of Labor fertile ground to uh, call them into question. And of course, they you know they want to do that because they'd much rather that we use their data and their um, their information and their wage levels because it's a lot easier for them to track for enforcement purposes and other things uh, of that nature. So. When these things happen, you know, when, when we don't get the wage that we like, either because we don't like the OES wage uh, the, from the Department of Labor or uh, our alternate wage survey um, hasn't really been, uh, is not good enough. So w what are our options at mm -hmm. that point in time? So, well, within 30 days of the determination coming back that we didn't like, we can ask for a redetermination. Uh, usually those are most successful if the Department of Labor has made an error, uh, either uh, in calculating the wage level or uh, they just coded the job wrong, uh, assigned a job classification which bears no relationship to the duties that were presented. Um, but And another option that employers have would be to appeal to the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals, uh, BALCA. Uh, also within 30 days, right, Jim? Uh, and uh, if that, that the, the downside to the bulk appeal, though I have heard that they run pretty much current nowadays, they're definitely prevailing wage challenges are a lot quicker than labor certification challenges. It still is a lengthy process. Uh, the very common fail-safe fail option is to revise and re refine and then just refile the prevailing wage determination, take another crack at it, uh, as long as Department of Labor 
uh, continues to accept these without the pro- uh, submission of a processing fee or, or something like that, uh, the biggest cost of doing that is basically obviously you know fees and time, but also time in potentially getting running forward with the labor certification process. Right. And also an, an additional trend, not specific to the uh, uh, alternative wage survey, but last summer we did see a case come out from Balka regarding prevailing wage determinations, and the argument there was could they use the all other category? And as we mentioned earlier and throughout this, DOL doesn't like the all other category. Mm-hmm. Um, they're generally uh, for emerging, emerging occupations, which they haven't really accepted yet, or they may not even have wage data for. Um, but there were some promising cases last summer uh, where Bulka actually um, mentioned that as long as you can make it clear that the, the all other category that you're choosing, um, duty for duty, is closer than any other occupation out there, DOL is supposed to use it. Um, you know, the cautionary measure here is if you're in the all other, often there's some overlap in job duties. So DOL is reluctant and often will not accept the all other. But it is something that you can try to pursue if there it's real really is the most appropriate category. I can also, see Korzad's dying to say something. I just wanted to make a quick point. Jim's absolutely right on all fours. But um, one thing to keep in mind is that Balka cases are not always followed it's by true. the agency, unfortunately. They don't give them precedential value. They look at each Balka case as decided on that case's specific facts, specific conditions, whatever. Uh, so because the agency doesn't look at them as precedent, uh, they may or may not follow it. And if they don't follow it, the only way to kind of force them to follow it is through that litigation uh, that That's would right. result in your own published Balka case. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I know we are always very mindful of being sensitive to you as employers making time in the middle of your workday and trying to wrap it up between 30 to 45 minutes. And I see we're actually a minute or two less than 30 minutes. So we're doing really well uh, today. I did want to just point out a couple quick uh, sort of uh, ideas in closing Um, one, which is, as you can imagine, the prevailing wage determination of PWD which, as we call it, I know for those from India, PWD sounds like the Public Works Department of the government, but this is so not the Public Works, or maybe it is similar to the Public Works, equally disorganized. Um, It is the keystone and the basic cornerstone of every PERM green card labor certification when you as an employer wish to sponsor an employee and go through the U.S. Department of Labor process because if your prevailing wage does not come back as satisfactory or met, your entire case is going to fall. So it is the basic fundamental foundation of your green card case. And the second important point that we kind of alluded to a couple times but didn't really delve into is that the PERM, as most of you may be aware, or if not, here's here's the golden rule, that PERM is always based on a future position because you as an employer are filing, unlike the H-1B, which is a current job at the current time, the perm and the green card is for a future position in the future. So if your employee or individual is already in that position today, then the Department of Labor actually looks at the wage and other requirements to confirm that it is consistent and being met with, even though technically the rule is that the prevailing wage does not have to be paid until the person actually obtains the green card. And if your employees are primarily born in a country like India or China, that could be 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. But the Department of Labor looks at the wage today to determine if it's consistent. So just two red uh, alerts for you to be aware of. 
So on behalf of Korzad Mehta, Jim McLaughlin, myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team, we are very grateful and thankful that you made time in your busy day to try to understand the complicated and complex PERM green card labor certification process and the prevailing wage issues. As you can understand, this is incredibly uh, an incredibly complicated and long-winded process. Just to file the PERM can take anywhere from maybe seven to nine months on average. And so the earlier you start, the better off you are as an employer because you have the quiet period, you have the ads to run, you have to do the interviewing, you have to get the prevailing wage. Uh, so don't come at the last minute in a panic that my employee's H1 is expiring in a year or year and a half. You're cutting yourself really, really tight and you're gonna get into a panic to lose the employee or the employer to leave the country, et cetera. So I really look forward to continuing to work with you and you know that you have the world's most awesome, brilliant, amazing team at the Murthy Law Firm to guide, protect, and take care of you as an employer and your valued employees so that you can focus on providing excellent service and we can focus on doing what we can do best, which is take care of all of your immigration matters. As our slogan rightly says, we know your immigration matters. Thank you and have a great day.